for that. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, continue here our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to kind of review just for a minute where we were uh, this past week. And again, um, if you've been with us these past couple weeks here through Ecclesiastes, you've noticed a much different tone to the conversation, a much different spirit and a much different attitude compared to that of the book of Philippians. Um, and I know last week there was a lot more, um, there's a lot of thinking involved. There was a lot of trying to wrestle and understand these different um, philosophies and understandings and different things that are at work here. Um, and, I, and the reason that I love studying through this book, both individually and, and corporately as well, is that it does offer a lot of uh, self-reflection, a lot of examination for ourselves to understand really how do we view the world? How do we understand why it is that we are doing what we are actually doing? How do we understand one another? How do we understand um, simply ourselves? How do we understand time? How do we understand work? What, what purpose is there in all that we do? Uh, last week we were in verses 9 through 11 and we opened up with Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, saying, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. And, and we spent time walking through that and reminding ourselves, as we see from Scripture, that there is nothing new under the sun, that things may simply take a different shape, but it's not as if things are new uh, this is not speaking, obviously, of innovation or of invention. Um, and if you remember, we're going to do a pop quiz. How many of you love pop quizzes? Yes. I, I, I didn't like them. Here's why. I told you guys last week about my school habits, correct? I think I said that a couple times, right? Uh, first semester didn't go well. I largely didn't do well because I didn't attend class. I went to class on days where there were tests and quizzes that I knew about. One of the classes gave pop quizzes. You didn't ever know when a quiz was going to be um, popping up, and I, I missed literally every single day that one of those was given, and you couldn't make it up. The reason that they did that was for what? To get you in class, right? Uh, so I got a lot of zeros on those tests. But, but now I love them because I actually go to school and stuff. Um, what was the ancient symbol of skepticism that we talked about for a few minutes last week? Does anyone remember? Some of us are drawing it, okay? It's a circle, right? That time is this never-ending loop, that it doesn't have a beginning, that it doesn't have an end. It's a very skeptical and pessimistic view of the world, that it simply just continues around and around and around and around. It continues on never really beginning, but never actually ending, which is why he can say, that which has been is that which shall be, and that which has been done will be done. Essentially, his worldview from under the sun, Solomon comes to find, if it was bad before, it's going to be bad again. How many of us want to get out of bed in the morning really cheerful and excited with that kind of an understanding of the world? I'm going to roll back over, throw the blanket over my head, and go back to sleep. Yet, we contrasted that with the Hebrew view of how they viewed life and how they viewed time, that they viewed it as linear, that it was a line, that they had an exact starting point, not in the sense of a dating where we know this is exactly when time and when the earth was created, but they understood that everything has 
a beginning, that there was an origin. And we went to Genesis chapter 1 in the first four words of Scripture, in the beginning, God. And that is a dramatic deviation and a dramatic starting point, dramatic difference in starting point when we understand that we have been created and who it was that has created us. We've contrasted this meaningless understanding of life where we just believe that we're just um, cells or um, stardust or a fish or whatever the case may be that has simply grown up and we've just evolved and we're just kind of doing things and reacting, responding with no purpose. So as we've walked through up to this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, a man who had all of the riches, all of the status, all that a person could ever dream of in a material sense, he surveyed the land, he's seen all that it has to offer under the sun in this simply earthly, temporal understanding and comes to the conclusion that all of it is meaningless. But as Christians, we know something dramatically different, don't we? We understand that death is not the end, that there is an eternity, that though we understand a starting point, we also see that there is something that, that God is doing, that throughout history he is moving us to an appointed destiny. And so we discuss that just a little bit. In all of our lives, we seek to understand the world in light of those two different poles, origin and destiny. Do you know where you came from? And do you know where you're going to end up? These are largely the questions that philosophy has sought to answer for generations, for centuries, for millennium. How do we understand who we are and where we came from? And am I actually going anywhere? Or am I just stuck in this hamster wheel, stuck in this circle of going to work, of coming back home, of going back to sleep? All to start the same thing over the next day. This morning we're going to walk verses 13 and close out chapter 1 here this morning. Solomon writes, starting in verse 13, And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we come to you this morning as we prepare to study your word with attentive hearts and attentive ears, and we ask on this morning that you would Grant us eyes to see that you would give us the ears to hear what it is that you have revealed. I pray that as we draw out these themes, as Solomon has, has written this, that we continue to keep in mind these inspired words that you yourself have spoken into your word, that as he draws out in seeking to understand what meaning there is 
under the sun and those things that are without you, that, that we are firmly resolved in this truth and understanding that, that without you, everything would be meaningless. But we praise you for the whole of Scripture. We praise you for what we are to study here shortly. And we, we take great uh, encouragement and hope and confidence in the fact that there is an incredible meaning in our life and the incredible uh, truth that you have made us in your image to honor and to glorify you in all that you do, that we have been made to bring you glory. And God, as we draw these themes out and as we wrestle perhaps with some internal struggles that we may have, I do pray that you would bring these things to light and that you would allow us to grow our affection for you and to draw closer to you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're like me, Perhaps you find it interesting that the wisest man to ever live struggled so much to understand everything that's around him. Uh, we, we often think, and we're going to uh, not necessarily walk each and every verse down in a row. We'll, we'll sort of do that, but I want to kind of also start here with the conclusion at the end of chapter 1 where he says in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. This is greatly contradictory to much of what I had believed and what I was often taught for so much of my life. It's just that, well, you don't understand everything around you. You just need to, uh, you need to get more wisdom. You need to know more things, and then everything becomes easier. That the more that you know, the easier things are going to get. Now, I could take that, and we can take this understanding and we can compare that here to Scripture and understanding that increaseth knowledge, increaseth sorrow. Why is this the case? Continue to keep in mind here, the whole context is this understanding that you're increasing in knowledge, increasing in wisdom of things that are simply under the sun. It is not increasing in the wisdom and the knowledge of God is going to create any sorrow. Who of us here says, as I've drawn much closer to God, as I've studied his word, I've seen him for who he is, that greatly increases my sorrow. The Spirit guides us and it leads us into a knowledge of who he is, increasing our joy of these things, that it's only because of that we understand our sorrow, we understand the things that do grieve us. And as we continue to follow these things out, I want us to make sure we continue to understand the context here. He's building this watchtower at a very surface level. He's wrestling with the human thought, with the human condition of things that have set God aside and says, I'm going to learn, I'm going to observe, I'm going to understand life all on my own. I don't need God. I don't need revelation because I believe I am smart enough. Here in verse 13, Solomon gives his heart to understand wisdom that is done under heaven. And as he continues to draw out there, this sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. We see that man's task to understand is often a very difficult one. But also that God has given us the task to, to seek after these things, to try to understand that God does not simply say, you don't need to know anything. Um, how many of us are familiar with the phrase, ignorance is bliss? Yeah, this is kind of the, the standard of the day, right? If you don't know better, that's great, because now we feel as if we're not accountable for things. 
where we can say, well, you just need to increase your knowledge, yet on the same token, the same person could say, but ignorance is bliss. It's why when things uh, jump in front of us that we may not necessarily like, or truths that are often difficult, we like to ignore them, right? We like to suppress it. We like to say, oh, I'm just not going to look at it. Um, it's the dirty dishes piling up in the sink that we just think as long as we just kind of keep walking around, it's just not actually going to uh, make a difference, right? It's all the things that we don't want to deal with. We just, we often have a spirit of ignoring these things, of just kind of casting it off, hoping it goes away on its own. Uh, St. Augustine wrote this, he said, The saints of God had their whole hope and aim centered on the everlasting good. Their whole desire pointed upward to the lasting and invisible realm, lest the love of what is visible drag them down to lower things. Here is an incredible contrast of where are we focused? Where do we keep our eyes fixed? Where are we looking as we walk through this journey of life here on this earth? that at one time seemed as if it was never going to end, and now many of us can look back and say, where did all of this time go? This point that the saints of God are to have their eyes fixed upon this invisible realm, have our eyes fixed upon the heavenly things, lest the love of what is visible drag them down to lower things. Because I think if we're being honest, we can often get very engrossed in just what we can feel, what we can taste, what we can touch, and what we can hold in our days today? How often do you get distracted from the things of God, from, from studying and reading in the Word of God, from prayer, from any of these things that God has given us, these spiritual disciplines, because we're so consumed by the physical, we're so consumed by the material that we can go weeks on end and realize that we, we've hardly spent any time with God at all. It drags us down to these earthly things. It drags us down to things. And I like that he doesn't just say earthly, but Augustine calls them lower things. And it's not just this understanding of heaven as above, earth as lower, but of, in this, this order of a status and of importance that what truly is more important? Is eternity more important or something that is temporary more important? Now, the sensible person says, Pastor, that's a stupid question. Obviously, eternity is more important. Well, let's take a moment of introspection, take a minute to examine and say, how much of my day-to-day -day time is dedicated towards eternity rather than the temporal? And as I often say, uh, understand that as I ask some of these questions, I'm also asking them to myself. These are things that I mentioned weeks ago. I said, if I'm going to struggle all week in preparation over these things, you're going to struggle with me too. It's not as if I'm up here saying, hey, you guys aren't doing this. You guys aren't, you know. Understand that we get so consumed by day-to-day -day things, and we can often just go, oh, I need to get my 10 minutes in here. Where we're fitting God into a schedule that we've already set out of the very earthly, of the very temporal. And we can always say, you know what, I'll do that later or I'll, I'll get another chance tomorrow. Here in verse uh, 14, he goes through and continues with this conclusion, one he echoes constantly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He says in verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity 
and vexation of spirit. He says, I have seen everything that is under the sun. And his conclusion is what? It's meaningless. This is not a person who hasn't experienced this. It's not as if he's writing and we can say, well, Solomon, you didn't actually get to experience this or you didn't actually see this. He had it all. He's seen all of it. And his conclusion is that if this is all that there is, if it is simply earthly, if it's simply temporal, then everything that we are doing here is meaningless. As he mentioned in verse 3, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? If we're just to live, to enjoy our short time, and we are to die, and that's simply the end of it, then what profit does a man have from any of his labor? Go one step further. Why would you even work then? If this is the only life that you have, the only time that there is, why would any of us waste our time working? Just go ahead and, and steal from the person next to you that is working hard to accrue things. Why not enjoy everything? Why not just do as the flesh wants to do if there is nothing else? He says he's seen it all under the sun and the conclusion is that this would all be meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. You're chasing after something you can never truly attain. The, the, the skepticism that runs throughout our culture often, uh, much like the Stoics in Scripture, their idea of how they pursue happiness, how they would pursue joy, how they would pursue fulfillment and meaning in all of these things is to maximize pleasure. Whatever it is that feels good, if it feels good, then it's a good thing. So go and enjoy as much pleasure as you possibly can. Maximize all of these things. Basically, just give in to what you are feeling and enjoy as much as possible. Consume as much as possible. Enjoy as much as possible because, hey, this is the only life that you live, so why not live it to the fullest? Does that sound like simply an ancient viewpoint or does that sound very familiar to many of us? Again, we're not reinventing anything here. It's like chasing after the wind. You're never going to get it. This idea that if you set your life goals as high as possible, if you set them incredibly high, you set your fulfillment and, and this pleasure all the way there, and that's your simple goal, when you get it, you're not going to actually be satisfied. It won't actually be good enough. And if you can never get there, you're not content. You're, you're discouraged. You're frustrated when those goals for pleasure aren't met. And so then the Epicureans come along and their idea was we need to find the optimum amount of pleasure. Just enough physical pleasure, just enough um, alcohol, just enough, just the right optimum amount of drugs. Because a little bit up to a certain point is okay. You just don't want to go too far. Just the right amount of gluttony. How many conversations do we have and do we hear of how far is too far? How much is too much? Where's the line where we can engage but yet not feel too convicted about it? This is how man seeks to live out much of their life is they, they do things in the dark and then contrastly they do different things in the light. Why? Because they just want to have the optimum amount of uh, respect from one another 
but also have the enjoyment of things they know they ought not to be enjoying. It's all chasing after the wind. You're never going to get it. It's like trying to complete a puzzle or a picture or a Rubik's Cube when you have missing pieces. It's inherently flawed. You're not going to be able to do it. I know some of you enjoy puzzles. You're crazy, but you enjoy puzzles. I'm really good at the 12-piece puzzles. I said I'm good at it. You could laugh if I said I struggle with the 12-piece puzzles, but geez, some of those pieces are tough. Um, I don't think we have a single puzzle at our house that has all of the pieces left. We have three small children and a dog. But imagine you get all of these pieces. You're trying to get a full picture of this puzzle, and yet you're missing 10 out of the 50 pieces. You are going to be frustrated. It's an inherently flawed pursuit to do something, to try to understand the full picture without ever actually having all of the pieces. It's not going to happen. Have you ever been able to answer the questions of life just with the wisdom that is under the sun? Remove what Scripture has revealed. Remove the things that you know about God. Could you answer the questions of life without that revelation, without that wisdom, without that knowledge? Many of us found ourselves there at one point, didn't we? Isn't that where we are prior to coming to know who Christ is, prior to regeneration, prior to salvation? We're simply wandering through life trying to understand everything. But there's always something missing. We're missing pieces of the puzzle. We can't understand all that God has made if we don't understand that God has actually made something. And he draws this out even a little bit further in verse 15. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. It's, it's crooked, it's futile, it's a burdensome thing to try to understand all of these questions of life simply using man's wisdom. But this is the burden of man's rebellion against God, isn't it? The burden of our sinfulness and our rebellion is that we are constantly struggling to understand everything about the world that we live in, trying to understand why things happen, trying to understand who we are and who others are. And so the conclusion that the, the man's rebellion against God leads us to is to say in our heart that there is no God and even if there is, I don't want anything to do with him. How many of you have heard that? I don't believe there's a God, but if there is, I want nothing to do with him. Incredibly proud, incredibly arrogant. It's, it's all just grasping after the wind. But much like the wind, much of what we desire in life cannot be held in our hands. Verse 15 is an incredible testament to our great need for God, as he says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. In spite of our greatest efforts, some crooked matters will always remain unstraight, won't they? That yes, God has revealed things through his word, and God has, has given us an incredible wealth of knowledge. He has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, but who here in this room says, I understand all of Scripture perfectly and I have a complete, full, exhaustive understanding of God? 
It's an incredible, uh, incredible beauty of Scripture that we're constantly learning, that we're constantly doing this. I remember one of the professors from back in college said that um, interpretation of Scripture is man's attempt to unscrew the inscrutable, that we can't, we won't understand all of it in this time, but we're also not meant to. Only God is the one who can make straight something that is crooked. And if you're like me, this, this might bother you. I don't like crooked lines. I'm not even super uh, obsessed about this. But I want things to make sense. I want to be able to draw a line from one thing to the next. I want to be able to explain everything. I want to be able to give answers to everything. I want to have a perfect knowledge and understanding of each and every little detail. But guess what? It's not going to happen. Only God can make straight that which is crooked. Apart from the Spirit, we are completely unable to understand what God has given. How can man truly repent of sins apart from the Spirit of God? Consider your own life that, that before Christ we were walking in a very crooked manner, that as we saw in Philippians, a crooked and perverse generation, that we understand our sinfulness, we know our sin before God, and we walked uh, very much in a crooked direction. And yet, how was a line made straight again? Was it because you said, I'm just going to follow the law and the statutes of God? I'm just going to change my behavior, and God's going to be pleased, and, and that's going to now be the new orientation of my heart? Or did the grace of God intervene, creating that which is straight, giving of the Spirit, now orienting the heart to actually delight in the things of God? We cannot repent of our sins apart from the Spirit of God. We can't turn our life around and just simply modify our behavior and just to say, you know what, I'm a really disciplined person, so all those things I want in my heart, I'm just not going to do it, and I'm going to absolutely love and serve God. No, I don't need that whole Holy Spirit thing. I don't need guidance. I don't need leading. I'm just going to go ahead and do it on my own. How thankful are you for the giving of the Spirit? Each and every day, do you, do you realize how impactful and how important that is? That every single day, the guiding and the leading into truth that the Spirit does for the believer to constantly guide you to orient your heart, your desires, and that which you enjoy, where you now actually delight in the things of God, whereas formerly you despised the things of God, that you lived in such a way that was completely in rebellion to God. When was the last time we, we've thanked God for the incredible Spirit that lives within us now? You know, it's a three-person trinity, right? But we often focus on just two and we say, Holy Spirit's there, cool, and we move on. In verses 16 and 17, he again puts himself in this. He says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate and have begotten more wisdom than they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. Solomon was looking at 
simply what he could observe, what he could see, what he could touch, what he could feel, and omitting what God had revealed, and he found it all to be meaningless. We often search for evidence in every area of life. We say, I'll believe that God is real if he shows me he exists. If he does something incredible, if he does a miracle, then I'll believe it. And as Jesus himself has said, that they wouldn't believe in the resurrection of the dead if they didn't believe in the law and the prophets. You can do incredible things, but simply a, a miracle or a sign and a wonder does not equal a person believing in God. How many saw Christ dead? How many saw the resurrected Christ? How many heard of all of these accounts and simply said, nah, probably not. Science tends, tries to explain so much of life and then simply comes to the conclusion that miracles don't exist because we can't observe it. We can't understand. We can't explain how all of these things happen, which is them defining what a miracle is, right? Because you can't explain it because people don't just raise from the dead. Understanding is an empty and a meaningless experience apart from God. I hope that as we do understand all of these things, as we walk through Ecclesiastes, that as you hear and you, you see this viewpoint, that you don't just go, right, but I know there's a meaning, but really dwell upon this and think. To actually consider, to engage your minds in these things and understand this is the human condition, that if this is all that there is, there is no meaning. We need to understand this thought process for so many of us because these are the people that we are trying to engage with the gospel, is it not? We have to engage in a culture that does not believe in God, that does not believe that they themselves even have any value. Have you spoken to a person that believes that they're worthless? It's a burdensome thing for the person who says, I'm just kind of here wasn't created, there's no meaning, I'm just kind of going through life, I don't even know why I'm, I'm here. And as we mentioned last week with Hemingway, his whole worldview centered around the only way that we can ever cheat death is to choose the time, the place, and the fashion in which we die. That's the only way we can win in this life. Verse 18, again, this conclusion of the chapter. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. It's often believed that wisdom leads to, leads to success, which leads to happiness. This is not the case with human wisdom. Because when we have no origin, when we believe that we were not created with any purpose, when we believe that we simply are, what purpose is there in doing anything that we are to do? The logical conclusion played out is that there is no actual meaning to what we do. There is no meaning to the time that we spend with one another. So why would life have any value if I wasn't actually made for a reason? I just kind of happened to be here. It's the way that many of us would view an insect. They're just kind of there. It has no value in our lives which is why we can so freely kill every little thing that comes across our way, which is why when we have a low view, which is why this is why racism is so prevalent in the world. We look and say there's no meaning to anything, 
Let's set up our own sense of meaning. And so now I'm going to place myself as higher than another person. So their life has no value. How much do we see of that between Jew and Gentile in Scripture, right? The one who places all of their hope in human achievement will inevitably come to the conclusion of being greatly grieved in these things. That grief is the result of pursuing wisdom and knowledge apart from God. That ignorance is bliss is greatly taught against in Scripture. Jesus said that we should learn from the birds of the air. Think about that. That we could learn something from the birds that fly. That they, they're not anxious, that they're not concerned about where they're going to get their next meal. That they're not concerned of these things. That God has revealed himself so that we may actually know him. If God did not, did not want us to know who he was, if he did not want us to increase in a knowledge of him, would he have ever revealed himself? Spend time to grow in the knowledge of who God is and what he's done. In the contrast with uh, much of the philosophy at the time, uh, Plato, was, Plato and Socrates, they, they argue so many of these different things. They're arguing against the conclusion, and we'll get there later in Ecclesiastes, that uh, we just need to educate man better. Everything is meaningless, but in order to accrue more power, to consume and enjoy to a greater extent, man needs to be much more educated. So let's go ahead and educate this person. But they weren't educating with knowledge. It was how to manipulate a person. It was how to uh, persuade. Where classes were taught to persuade an individual, but not to offer truth or to actually give knowledge. Again, you're, you're very sensible people. You can see uh, where this would logically lead to. It's a very dangerous place to be. And Socrates himself found this to be basically the end of humanity, to say where truth is going to be cast out, we're, we're going to absolutely fall because we're no longer concerned for one another. We're simply just trying to gain power over another. Does that sound like love your neighbor as yourself? diametrically opposed worldviews, which is why he then comes along and says, the unexamined life is not worth living. A very familiar uh, understanding for many of you. But also, too, with the improper understanding, the examined life can also be incredibly uh, despairing, couldn't it? We examine our life in light of things apart from God, and we come to the conclusion that, yeah, there's... There is nothing here, that there is no meaningless, that there is no meaning. It's all meaningless. That's what I meant. But think for just a minute at those that you know. Think about even yourself. When you examine your life, do you actually see meaning in it? Or do you just say, I'm kind of here, I'm rotating throughout the circle, never ending, every day seems to be the same. One day to the next, it's just get up, have my toast, go to work, get back home, Go back to sleep, do it all the next day, never examining anything that's around you, never learning anything that's around you, never stopping for a minute to delight in all that God has actually given to you each and every day. As, as I uh, was studying throughout this at basketball camp as well, um, it was interesting, it was probably two hours after I had come to different conclusions and 
kind of nail down a couple of things. I was talking with one of our basketball players, and they were talking. Um, as you know, high school kids don't always use the best language and things. Shocker, I know, crazy. <laughs> um, and one of the, the basketball guys brought up, you know, said, I've known you for four or five years. I've never heard you, never heard you swear, never heard you curse, anything like that. And, he's, and he just kind of, and I was like, yeah. And he looked at me and said, but I kind of want you to because then I'll actually know that you're human. Now, there's two things that immediately went into my mind. The first was, one, that's, that's encouraging because there's obviously something in, in conduct and in behavior in four or five years that it's an encouraging thing to hear from a person. And the immediate next thought was, if he only knew. The person who looks and says, man, I just, I just want to know that you're actually human because it doesn't even seem like it, or whatever the conduct is, that they believe a certain thing and that just immediate understanding and feeling of, if you only knew. Because we often don't wrestle or actually um, engage with the understanding of our depravity, of our, of our sin, and yet I sit back and I think, okay, he's known me for four or five years. Does that mean I'm a man without sin for four or five years? I mean, imagine. That would be remarkable, wouldn't it? But yet even then, God using a sinner like myself and by his grace and by the Spirit to simply show forth something that reflects not what everything, not everyone else that he sees, that there is something different from that conduct, and yet completely imperfect, not perfectly holy, but even the glimpses of those things stand out to a person. And I, and I just walked through all of this, and I, I was considering Ecclesiastes as he said that is, because that's the worldview that the, the unbeliever has, is that everything is meaningless. And when a person speaks with meaning, does things with a purpose, and has love for another person, that is an incredibly remarkable sight to see. You've been in workplaces where that is not present, and you've been in workplaces where there is some of that. You greatly delight in the workplace where there is a meaning to what you're doing, when there is a purpose when you have that fellowship, that common love for those that you're with. And as I sat back and I, I, I thought of these things, it was, uh, it was the interesting time of where you feel encouraged for a minute and then you quickly are reminded, yeah, but that's not you, Matt. That's not because you're doing a really good job. And so as we walk through all of these things, his conclusion being that he has searched, he has he has given his heart to understand all of these things under the sun. And he's found it as meaningless. He's going to enter in and he's going to engage more and more in these things. But I want us to continually come back to the truth that we have a purpose, that we were created with the purpose of bringing all glory to God in all things. And how do you show that there's a purpose to your life? We simply bring along the message of the gospel. How could you share the life, death, resurrection of Christ and come to a conclusion that there's no meaning in your life? That there's no meaning to anything that we do? The message of the gospel greatly contrasts the way that people live.
And as I, I'm going to keep saying, it, I know Ecclesiastes doesn't get you guys excited. I know it doesn't get everybody. I'm going to go out and just start sharing Ecclesiastes with people. But we understand the human condition. We understand the way that we try to gain understanding. Apart from God, it's folly. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Wisdom comes from God and God alone. And we cannot simply rely on this understanding that ignorance is bliss and step back and say, I just don't want to, I don't need to understand these different things. I'm just going to smile and be happy. Delight in the things of God. Delight in the learning and the knowledge of who God is. The Spirit is guiding and leading you to draw closer to Him. The Spirit is going to grow that affection and that delight for the things of God, for the things of Himself. What an incredible testimony it is that for those of us who have believed upon Christ, who have trusted in His finished work for salvation, that we can see these things in Ecclesiastes and we can sit back and say, He's got it all wrong. This isn't all that there is, that there is a heaven, that there is an eternity, that yes, that it, things may seem meaningless and that there may be sin, that things may be crooked, but God has made a way for those things to be straight. That by his spirit, a person can even walk in the right direction at all. What a beautiful testimony of truth that that is. And it's something that I'm eternally thankful for as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the testimony of your word. We thank you for the, the encouragement that it is that your people can look past that which we simply see in this time, that we can look past the material, that we can look at those that are around us and that we can bring a message of hope and of redemption and encouragement as we show forth your word, as we do so not just by the way that we live or that we love, but that we would be willing to be courageous enough and bold enough and confident enough to speak the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word into the life of those that are around us. Father, we look back at the faithful men and women that have come before us, those that have perhaps been instrumental in our being drawn to you as they were willing to go out of their way to share the gospel with us. As, as for many, we've, we've come to know you through maybe an invitation of a friend to go and to sit under the preaching or the hearing of your word, and we're incredibly thankful for that faithfulness. Lord, let us be a, a faithful people, ones who would take this message of hope and of joy and encouragement and delighting in the things of you to those that are wrestling with with identity, wrestling with any hope and encouragement that simply look back at the world and say, everything that is here is meaningless. There has to be more. God, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see, that you have given ears to hear, and I pray that as your people we would go out, that we would be willing to share this message that we so greatly rejoice in, that we so greatly delight and cling to so firmly that we would go out and that we would be your hands and your feet carrying this message of the gospel to those that are around us. That in our homes and in our, our churches and even in our government, that we would reflect that which you have called us to, that we would reflect what you have 
ordained for your people to be a light to those that are around us. God, I pray that we wouldn't adapt the, the thinking or the philosophy of those that, that do not know you, that say in their heart that there is no God, but that we would, as your people, remain firm on these things, that we would trust in your word and see it as sufficient for every area of our life. We pray that those who, who do not know you, who, who are apart from you, who who have not come to, to trust and to a belief in you, that you by your spirit would, would, would turn them from their sin, that you would bring about repentance, that you would bring about faith, that a person would come to see you as you are and put all of their trust, all of their faith, and live obediently to you. Lord, we understand that it is only you who can make a crooked line straight. It is only you who can save, that there is no saving that any of us can do for another. But Lord, we, we obediently and faithfully understand that you have called us to be instruments in these things and that you are the one who brings about the intended result. Lord, I pray for a, a people that are faithful, a people that will show forth that joy that you have given to each and every one of your people, that we would be able to engage in the culture in a way that you have called us to, though it may be hard, though persecution may be faced, much as it is in many other countries and in China, as we've seen. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us what you've promised, which is the boldness, the patience, the endurance, and the perseverance to continue on in these things for those that are of the faith. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.